With Roosevelt's death and the end of World War II, Robeson's political views separated him from most Americans. From this point on, his artistic career was almost entirely political. He only sang for causes in which he believed, as at the Paris Peace Conference. Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. Community Radio, KBOO, Portland, Oregon, in the beautiful Willamette Valley. What would KBOO be without its more than 300 volunteers? They support the station with everything, and now they need someone to support them. KBOO is looking for a community organizer who would bolster and empower our volunteers. Are you the right person, or do you know someone who is? Then go to kboo.fm to learn more about the essential functions of the volunteer coordinator and the qualifications we're looking for. To apply, please email your resume and cover letter to hiring at kboo.org by Sunday, March 6 at midnight. You can also apply by mailing your resume and cover letter to Cable Radio, 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon, 97214. Remember, Cable is a volunteer-powered radio. Cable is looking for a next membership director. Cable's members are the heart and soul of our community, and we need a dedicated person to honor and foster this relationship. Are you the right person to steward and manage KBOO's membership department, or do you know someone who is? Then go to kboo.fm to learn more about the essential functions of the membership director and the qualifications we are looking for. To apply, please email your resume and cover letter to hiring at kboo.org by Sunday, March 6 at midnight. You can also apply by mailing your resume and cover letter to KBOO Radio, 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon, 97214. Members make KBOO happen. Good day and welcome to the bike show. 
My name is Alon Rab, and I will be joined today by co-host Nedra Deadweiler as we speak with some of the cyclists that work to make Portland a better cycling city. In the first half of the show, our guests will be Kale Johnson, chair of Bike Loud PDX, an organization at the forefront of actions to increase safety and access for all cyclists. Kiel will also speak about Bike Loud's organizing to make Bike Plan 2030 a reality. This is a plan adopted by the city of Portland that aims to make bicycles share of all travel in the city 25%. In the second half of the show, our guest will be William Francis, Programs Director at Portland's Community Cycling Center, Project of Education, Bike Repair and Activism in Existence Since 1994. Thank you for joining us today. We will start with Kiel Johnson of Bike Loud PDX, who will speak with Nedra Deadweiler. Kale Johnson is the chair of Bike Loud Portland. In 2011, Kyle received an Alice Award for his work organizing bike trains. He worked as a bike safety instructor for the BTA as well as a bicycle delivery person for UPS. Ten years ago, he started Go Buy Bike, which operates the largest bike valet in North America. Over those ten years, Go Buy Bike has parked over a half a million bikes, which is incredible. Kyle was one of the founding members of Businesses for a Better Portland and serves as a treasurer for Chris Smith's Metro campaign. He lives in the Cully Green co-housing community with his partner Kate and a three-year-old daughter. Um, I'm Nedra Deadweiler, your host. We're joined here today with Kyle Johnson of Bike Loud Portland, and he is the chair. And so we're going to have a really great conversation. I'm really, really glad to be here. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. When you think of being on your bike, the what song comes to mind, or what sort of feeling does it create? The song that comes to mind is there's an Arcade Fire song about the suburbs that I probably listen to the, the most. And it's got a line about like passing a bunch of dead shopping malls. And uh, in Portland, I used to live next to a shopping mall that is, is slowly dying. And uh, that was sort of my, my anthem. I think that, yeah, riding a bike through the city is just a different way of engaging with the city and seeing the city in a different way from a different vantage point. And so I'm always sort of thinking about how that vantage point is different than what a lot of people experience when they're in their cars. I mean, you bring up a good point of just how seeing the, the landscape, it changes from a car to a bike. When did you make that transition yourself? I grew up in Seattle and I was never into riding bikes. I've never raced bikes, I take public transit a fair amount. And then, but then it was like in college, I went on a trip and got to visit Copenhagen and the Netherlands and just seeing what a city could be like was was really eye-opening and it was just a very different way of perceiving a city as a place that inspires you and and makes you feel connected to other people as opposed to just something that you're trying to get from one side to the other as quickly as possible and so that was pretty the the, the transformation for me folks who do not ride a bike or have not ridden one since they were a kid that they don't realize what they're missing and how it changes the scale of how a place is designed and even how it feels and that connectivity. 
how did you get involved in going from being a cyclist on vacation, bring it into your, your real life, and then becoming an advocate? I think that a lot of my advocacy started with, I think that our generation has had a lot of time to think about climate change and what that means for our future. You know, I'm 35 and sort of grew up with climate change being a, a real big issue and something that uh, needs to be addressed and feels like it's not being addressed at all. After uh, college, I interned for a little bit at the Portland Bureau of Transportation because I was considering becoming an engineer, uh, urban planner, but then the idea of working in an office was just so miserable, I couldn't, couldn't take it. But it was really interesting to see how the bureaucracy works and doesn't work and be in a lot of the meetings where they're making these decisions and, and how these decisions get made over what our roads look like and 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 that impacts so much of society and then after that i uh, started a nonprofit where we organized bike trains to schools and at one point we had like 23 elementary schools that all had bike trains and there was a, a citywide competition and then after that i uh, taught bike education at, at schools we did this like two week long course where we taught kids how to ride bikes and we did like a community ride at the end and it was just so impactful and inspiring to see all these kids and just uh, how bicycling and be, being on a bicycle opened up their whole neighborhood and community and it didn't matter what your background was or where you came from everybody on the bike was was an equal and then after that i started a, a little bike shop there's a an aerial tram in portland and uh it's sort of a gondola that goes from the river to the top of a hill and there's a college uni uh, campus in between and uh we started i started a little bike shop at the bottom of the tram um and then that turned into we started doing bicycle valet and now it's the, the the largest bicycle valley in North America. I've been doing that for about 10 years, and we've parked about half a million bicycles. And so, yeah, sort of doing all those things, I think, made me realize just the, the impact that advocacy can have in terms of changing the system to make it so that more people can access bicycles and as a way to get around. That's a lot of different activities experiences <laughs> to, to take up and to bring into the role that you have now. Can you tell us what is Bike Loud PDX? Bike Loud PDX is sort of the Portland Bike Advocacy Group. We used to have a larger sort of more like institutionalized group called the Bicycle Transportation Alliance and they sort of changed their name and direction and for a while there wasn't really any bike advocacy or any organization that was focused on bike advocacy and sort of focused on making the case and sort of telling the narrative around the importance for bicycling. And so Bike Loud kind of sprung out of that need. And right now, the way that it works is we have sort of a, a citywide board and then there are three local chapters that are focused on different neighborhoods. And each local chapter leads rides and sort of pays attention to the projects and infrastructure projects that are going on in that neighborhood. And then we can sort of work together to help advocate and write letters and 
mobilize people around making those projects uh, the best bicycling facilities possible. And our main goal is in uh, 2010, Portland passed the Bicycle Master Plan, and it's been 10 years now. And uh, in that plan, it calls for Portland to get to 25% of all trips made by bike. And so that's sort of Bike Loud's mission is to help Portland achieve that goal of 25% of all trips in the Portland by bike by 2030. And we've got ways to go. You've worked with schools, you're, you're doing bike ballet and you had a shop. So thinking of outreach and the disparate people in a community, how have you been able to bring that into creating an outreach plan for, for Bike Loud and just get to 25%, how do you go from where you are now to, to, to where you'd like to be? What does outreach look like? Yeah, we're, right now we're at about 5% of all trips made by bike in the city, or made by bike in the city. And I bet that Atlanta is maybe 1% or less than 1%, I don't know. But uh, uh, Vancouver, Vancouver, BC uh, got to 10%, which is pretty good. The outreach is really important in connecting with communities. And, you know, that's what advocacy is all about. It's about connecting with other people and building communities around different ideas and visions. And uh, the thing that I've found the most effective is, is, uh, is block parties and, and community bike rides. And so before the pandemic, I organized a series of 15 block parties. Every Sunday, we had a, a block party on another block down the street. And at each of the block parties, we had a sort of community slow roll ride that was kind of inspired by the Detroit slow roll ride. And, and it was just great to see all these people feel comfortable to be able to be on a bike and see what, what could be possible if they had the, the infrastructure to safely ride a bike all the time. Um, I'm looking at this photograph that's on the headliner of, your, of the website for Bike Loud. And it's amazing. It's really beautiful. It's definitely inspiring because it's, it's a whole, it looks like a, an entire city block or several blocks are several blocks, yeah. Yeah, and the street is just filled with with people on bicycles, and mm-hmm. um, that is amazing. It's very energizing. I'm wondering what kinds of conversations are. Do people have different views? Have you have you in having conversations with community members at the block parties? Because that sounds like a great way to get people on a bike. What are what types of things are you finding that Portlanders want? I think that the number one thing that we hear from people is that they need uh, separation from cars. That cars and bikes just, it's really difficult for them to get along and for most people to feel safe. They need to be separated from cars. And, you know, especially we were talking earlier about the rise in traffic deaths and cars are just getting a lot bigger too and more dangerous. And so I think that sort of highlights the need for more of that separation. I think one of the hardest things is just sort of having people see that there's a different city that's possible. That's probably one of the the biggest challenges. Just because the United States has invested so much in car infrastructure and we don't have that many places where you can sort of imagine a city being for anything else. And I think one of the strengths of Portland is that it is a place that where we can sort of try out easy ideas and maybe some of them work, maybe some of them don't, but hopefully the ones that do work can inspire other cities around the United States to, uh, to try some different things. 
keep doing what you do. Just keep pressing <laughs> forward, um, blazing a trail. Someone's going to follow behind you. One of the things that we're, as we're talking and thinking back about that master plan and also thinking about your time in Copenhagen, what are the points of either overlap or what has been created in that master plan that's going to move that, that ride share, that mode share? Yeah, I think that uh, that's a really great question. You know, this, this plan was made in 2010, and I think that it needs to it could probably use an update. I think that it would be really helpful to have a lot more voices participating in that update and bring in a lot more communities and ask them what a vision around bicycling would look like for, for those communities, especially in Portland, communities of color and other marginalized communities. But uh, I think one of the strengths of the plan is that it sort of talks a lot about the need for that protected infrastructure. And I think that the challenge is getting the city to make the protected infrastructure the default. And so we're going to, if we're redoing a street, if we're going to repave a street, we're going to put in protected bicycling infrastructure by default. And if for some reason we driveways so we're not able to do that, then we need to like make that case and uh, the city needs to make that case. But uh, right now, I think that we're struggling a little bit in Portland because we're just fighting block by block for bike infrastructure. And it's just easier for the bureaucracy to, to not put it in. And a lot of times it, it, it comes down to removing parking too. That's the one of the biggest issues is parking. And if you ask, People, if they like bike infrastructure and want to see more, you know, 25% of all trips by bike in a city where kids aren't run over and have the freedom to move around, people say, oh, that sounds great. But if you ask them, hey, we might have to uh, remove one of these uh, car parking spots in front of your house or your business, then uh, the conversation is really different. Yeah, change is, change is real difficult unless it's put on you. But these COVID years has taught us if if companies had been asked you know, five years ago, how do you, what do you think about giving your staff the opportunity to work from home? No, they wouldn't have said, no, can't do that. It's too difficult. It costs too much. No, no, no. Productivity is going to go down. But uh, what have we found is just the opposite. Like it's yeah. easy. And all of these, all of this infrastructure has come up around being able to work collaboratively uh -huh. from home or whatever. So, yeah. Uh, you know, if change comes upon us, like we adapt to it very quickly. One thing you mentioned was about basically equity and getting given opportunity for more voices to be part of this plan, constructing this plan and just revisioning what transportation could look like. How are you making strides in that way? So we're part of a, this called the Clean and Just Transportation uh, Coalition. And it's a collection of environmental transportation and uh, equity and housing groups. And but our, our main focus for that group is, you know, the conversation around the state funding of transportation, because ultimately, you know, the city can pass these bike plans and come up with cool designs for for some roads. So much of the money is going to highways. And so in Portland right now, we're fighting two highway expansions in the middle of the city, which is crazy. They want to increase the number of lanes to from 4 to 11 and spend about, the, the two projects combined 
would probably equal about close to $10 billion. And, and this is a, a highway that uh, went through the Albina, the historic black neighborhood. They want to expand the freeway right up to Harriet Tubman Middle School. And right now, kids aren't allowed to run outside because the air quality is so poor there. They want to build a giant 30-foot wall next to the playground and, and spend you know, $10 billion on improving a freeway. I just saw the, they had a, a study on the people who are using it. And let me just pull this up really quickly. The, rush, the average rush hour commuter on I-5 makes $106,000 a, a, a year and 86% of the people are white. So we're going to spend, you know, $10 billion to maybe make things go a little faster for those wow. people, but also expanding freeways just doesn't work. So, yeah, how do, we, how do we create the conversation around that? And then when we're, like, trying to get, you know, a few bullards or a parking-protected bike lane, it becomes a big, big fight. But uh, that's, that's small pennies compared to that. Wow, that's a... Um... That is so much and so much of the history of transportation. And it's, I think it's important for people to realize it's not just a historical happening, that it's something that still happens right now. And to see that happening and expanding again, it's, oh, it really hurts. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the other challenges is that we have, this, the state is just really designed, these state departments of transportation are just really designed around building more freeways. Mm-hmm. And that's the only way that they, they see their, their role. But what we need is regulation on freeways as opposed to just keep on expanding because it just is so expensive and we just can't keep on wasting our money that way. I think that you also brought, brought up another really important thing about equity and transportation, and that's housing. And housing is something that uh, Bike Lab has been really involved with in Portland and something that I'm really passionate about as well. And getting rid of single-family uh, home designations and pushing for, for more density and just more housing options in the city is really important for creating a city that has 25% bike mode share for sure. And yeah, and that, that, that those housing policies, you know, have impacted a lot of the inequality in cities that exists. One yeah. of the inspire, inspiring stories from Portland is in the 70s, we uh, uh, did kill a, a freeway expansion that was going to go in. And instead, we took that money and used it to fund the first light rail system in the United States. Woo! Yeah. So, and if we, you know, took the $10 billion that they're proposing to spend on this freeway expansion and put it into light rail and transit, man, we could have a really great system. And that's like, you've done it before. So there is this, there is a yeah. way that the magic can happen again. <laughs> it can happen. <laughs> yeah. If everything lines up. Yeah. If everything lines up, it's in, it's in your DNA. There are a couple other things that I'm real curious about. Um, Bike Love, what is Bike Love and your advocacy trike? Bike Love is just about sharing the bike love with other people. And so we, uh, it was sort of a, a campaign that we had going all through February, sort of around Valentine's Day and uh, just handing out little love notes to people that ride their bikes, uh, stickers, and also love notes to people that uh, were driving their cars too. 
and just sort of sharing the love for each other and that we're all sort of in this together and, and connected. And then we have another campaign right now to raise funds for an advocacy trike. And this is a, a tricycle that would have a, a, a big front box that we could store uh, materials in to hand out, a map of the bike plan, and the, the trike would sort of be covered in our logo and we would uh, use it on bike rides, a lot of the, the group rides, leading the slow roll rides, and use it to really create a, a presence at bike events and a way for people to, to connect more. Yeah, vis a visible muse, so to speak. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. So are there any new projects or other projects that you have? What else you got happening? We're also gonna be doing a campaign, there's a, uh, a neighborhood greenway called Going in Portland, and we're gonna. Well, before the pandemic, Portland did uh, about six of these Sunday parkways every summer, and it was like a six-mile loop that was closed off the cars, and it was sort of designed to get a lot of people out riding their bikes and sort of seeing this infrastructure and sort of be inspired to see what the what a city could be like. And during the pandemic, unfortunately, the city has stopped doing these. Uh, they're going to maybe do a couple this summer, but uh, we're going to try to organize our own and we're going to have it every Sunday on a neighborhood greenway in, in Portland and just really promote getting people out using it, coordinate with block parties to happen on the street, connect with different groups and organizations to get them to come out and experience it. And then kind of the goal is that this one can be successful this summer then expanding it to do a whole bunch of them throughout the whole city next summer and to have it be a weekly thing as opposed to the Sunday Parkways, which were one, once a summer in a different neighborhood. As we are kind of coming to a close of our conversation, um, with could you leave us with a picture of the Portland that this 2030 plan is going to present us? It's such a, an exciting vision. It's a, a city where kid, any kid can get to school by bike. Uh, elementary school kid, middle schooler, high schooler, uh, college kids, college adults, I guess. It's a, a city where you can interact with people in a positive way when you're transporting yourself around, where people in cars are more respectful to each other, where people are just moving a little slower and more thoughtfully through the city. It's a city that has a lot more public space available because you don't need as much space for car parking. It's a city where our sort of like business main streets are thriving and there's a lot of people walking. It's a lot easier to walk in a city that's got 25% of all trips by bike. It's a city where you just feel a lot more connected to your neighborhood. I think that's the big thing. You know, if you look at the Netherlands, bike trips kind of peter out after about, uh, when a bike trip is longer than 15 minutes. And so we really wanna create a city where you can get to most of your destinations in 15 minutes by bike. And that's kind of a, a, a smaller loop around sort of uh, your, your community than like being able to hop on the freeway and go really far. And so I think that living in that smaller loop just makes you feel a lot more connected to your place, the people around you, without as much pollution, it'd be great. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, it's real good. Um, sounds like a really great, great place. I think 
more people. It's, a, it's also a city that inspires other cities around the United States. I think that's really important is that uh, Portland could achieve a city where 25% of trips are made by bike. It would really like change things, the narrative and what's possible in other cities in the United States too. Yep, 100%. Yes, keep, keep being a, a source of inspiration. May you achieve that. Maybe may Bike Loud, may Portland be inspired <laughs> place and inspiring. Thank you, yeah. Post rides on the shift calendar and then I think also on the Bike Portland calendar too. Okay, sounds good. All the ways to connect. So folks, yeah. make sure you connect. Visiting Portland, make sure you connect. So Yeah, yeah. I'm always happy to take people on bike rides if there's any visitors. Show them what we, we got in Portland. Okay, sounds great. And... That's a wrap. And that was Keel Johnson of Bike Cloud PDX, the chair of the organization, a group that has been doing fantastic work advocating for cyclists and better transportation and living in Portland. Thank you, Keel Johnson, and thank you, Nedra Deadweiler, for the interview. In the second half of the show, we will be speaking with William Francis, program director of another great organization located in Portland, the Community Cycling Center. Stay tuned.
And that was the song The Suburbs by Arcade Fire, a song that our first guest, Kiel Johnson, chair of iCloud PDX, chose. Our second guest today is William Francis, program director of the wonderful Community Cycling Center. The organization has been doing good work for many years, and its vision, as stated by the group, to help build a vibrant community where people of all backgrounds use bicycles to stay healthy and connected. We believe that all Portlanders, regardless of income or background, should have the opportunity to experience the joy, freedom, and health benefits of bicycling. This is the motivation behind everything that we do. Good day and welcome to the show. Hi, Alan. Very excited to be here. Uh, before we get to the Community Cycling Center and the wonderful work they've been doing for 27 years, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, uh, first of all, my name is William Francis. I am the programs director at the Community Cycling Center. I grew up riding bikes as a youth a little bit, but didn't really get into bikes until I was in college. I, uh, I attended Lewis and Clark College as an undergrad, and I never, I never drove a car. Uh, I still haven't, actually. I've never driven alone. I've only driven with my parents before. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we used the bikes at, at, at school to really get to know Portland. So it was kind of my ticket outside of the, the school campus and into downtown Portland and, and beyond. And then later on, I uh, got a job with the Bicycle Transportation Alliance, which later became the Street Trust, and taught a lot of bike safety education with them and eventually became a, a manager there for the bike safety and pedestrian safety education programs. And uh, lived a little bit abroad, which I might talk about here in a minute, uh, kind of in between then. And recently, I've, I've been at the Community Cycling Center for about four years now. I, this uh, director of programs positions new for me. I was previously for the last three years, I was a uh, safe routes to school coordinator at Cesar Chavez school in North Portland. So I'm excited to have this new job, but things are very busy. I'm, I've hit the ground running for sure. <laughs> and where did you grow up? I grew up in the Seattle area in, in Bellevue and then moved away to, to Portland about in 2004, it would have been. And you lived and taught English in Colombia and Mexico? Yes, I graduated at the, at the height of the economic crisis in 2008 and applied to many positions here in the States, but with limited professional experience, I, I ended up not getting any job offers here. So I uh, decided to and was able to go teach English in, in Colombia and uh, was there for, for three years, yeah, teaching English um, part-time and, and also traveling and getting to know the, the country and, and honing my Spanish skills was really my, my main goal. And Colombia is a country with a lot of racers, a mountainous country, but with a rich history of cycling. Uh, were you able to ride a bike in Colombia and Mexico? Yeah, in both countries, actually, I, I used a bike to commute um, uh, almost exclusively. I took some of the, the public transportation, but ended up biking most of the time. And, and I really don't come into to the field or, or biking with much knowledge of racing, but living there, I could tell that that was definitely a thing. I, I would be on the bus going to some of my classes, and I think I saw the, the national team training in their peloton. So 
it's a it's a vertical country like a lot of the countries in, in the andes and go up and down across climates and all uh, a lot of the roads are gravel uh so i i know that the folks in colombia are, are really into climbing over descending and i bought uh, a frame actually in colombia that i that i've since built up and it's one of my my trusted members of uh my bike collection <laughs> that i'll never sell ever <laughs> And uh, Mexico, I've been to Guanajuato several times and Mexico City. I didn't see many cyclists there. I don't know what your experience was. Yeah, biking in, in Mexico City is a little rough, though I do know people that do it, and I, I've done it a little bit myself. You have to be very aware of your surroundings. Obviously, there's a lot of cars moving in a lot of different directions and a lot of noise and distractions. But it's, it's still a great way to get to know the city. I was living in Morelia, mainly, uh, which is in the, it's in Michoacan, which is a, a state just west of Mexico City. It's a smaller city, so biking there was much more reasonable and felt safer to me. But uh, yeah, I definitely uh, put some big dents in my rims in that city in particular, as I commuted kind of from the outskirts with less lighting into the city for, for work. The Community Cycling Center, uh, tell us a little bit about it, maybe its history, uh, how was it founded, uh, how has it developed over the years? Yeah, I don't have my, my whole spiel thoroughly developed on this one, but I can say that the Community Cycling Center got started um, as a bike co-op of sorts in, in, on Alberta in its present location. We're at 1700 Northeast Alberta Street. But in the early 90s, demographically, that neighborhood looked very different than it does today. And so that has a lot to do with how our programs have evolved over the years. That space kind of started up as a place where mainly young black youth would be able to go to get their bikes fixed up so that they could continue to use them around around town and also learn how to build some, some skills to repair them. Uh, themselves and and have some autonomy over or over their their bikes and then as that neighborhood got more and more gentrified over the years a lot of the folk that used to live in that neighborhood have since been displaced to, to further north portland or um, out east and in, in the numbers as as people say and so we brought a lot of our programming to those neighborhoods um, away from the shop uh, over the years Speaking of gentrification, what are some of your thoughts about gentrification and bicycling? Do you agree with those that claim that every time there's a new bicycle lane in a poor community, that means gentrification? I don't think that it necessarily does. I think that there's a lot of truth behind thinking that way, though. I think a lot of the ways that city projects have funded infrastructure improvements uh, across across the city do exacerbate gentrification but I, I can tell you I, I, I'm volunteering with a with a TIF project in Coley neighborhood which is explicitly supposed to be led by community members so I think there are new and, and, and creative ways of doing development infrastructure development that center the needs of marginalized populations but I think historically, uh, it, it has not worked out to the favor of those demographics and they've been displaced as a result. So, yeah, and, and there's also, I think, something to be said for what understanding what a community wants and needs and how that 
how that changes across time and context. And uh, I think maybe a bike lane is not always what a community wants and needs, even though, you know, cyclists, I think, are coming into that situation with, with the best of intentions. But it's not always about prescribing things to people. It's about listening to what they want and need in the moment and uh, just being a good listener in that sense, I guess. I lived in the neighborhood in the late 80s and kind of followed also the community cycling center's uh, birth and development. And I've always been impressed with how the center seems well integrated into the community and how the needs of people in the community are listened to. That's, That's something that always impressed me about the community cycling center. And I salute the organization for that. So when you were involved with Safe Routes to School, what's involved exactly? How do you work at the school? Just broadly speaking, Safe Routes to School is a kind of a, it's a brand I would, I would describe it as. It started back in the, in the aughts uh, through, from the federal level and then has kind of continued on throughout the year. So when we talk about safe routes to school, we're talking about specifically for us, it's our after school program bike club, which is taught during a after school hour. And then we also offer community based camps and we recruit through the schools for those. So a lot of our relationships in our communities are founded and, and in the schools in those communities that we work with. So I was doing my work specifically at Cesar Chavez School in North Portland. And then I have uh, a colleague, Natty Pilius, who's Safe Routes to School coordinator over at Rosa Parks Elementary School. So they're two schools very close to each other in North Portland. And yeah, in addition to the two programs that I mentioned, we also support walk and roll to school days. At Cesar Chavez, I participated in a few infrastructure related projects advocated with the city to get marked crosswalks, uh, uh, speed beacons placed in there. Uh, I started up a a school safety patrol team. So it kind of looks different at each school depending on what the community is wanting to do. But I would say those are some of the kind of standard things that we offer through Safe Routes to School. And, And going back to your last question and kind of tying it into this one, I think what we do that's that's particularly unique compared to other people in the Safe Routes to School is how we go deep into quality of what we provide over the quantity. So a lot of Safe Routes to School coordinators are spread very thin, and you know you might be one person that that works with a, an entire school district. Whereas our model is very focused in on specific communities, and we offer the range of our programs within that community. But, you know, the downside of that is we don't reach uh, a lot of other communities because we are so heavily invested in the few that we work with. And um, what's the response? Uh, I mean, in addition to the kids, how do their parents feel about the program? Or do you find that school administrators are mostly supportive? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, I, I, I think the fact that the programs are extracurricular makes it a lot easier to say yes to working with us. At my former job at the Street Trust, we were teaching students during their school, academic school day. So the teachers had to factor that into all the other stuff that they had to cover and the testing and all that. So it's a little bit more laid back in that sense. But yeah, I think a lot of parents in the communities that we work with come into the, the program kind of curious as to what it might actually be. So we send out a lot of 
materials before parent letters, descriptions of the program. We do a lot of in-school visits to talk to parents about what the program is, uh, at, answer questions that they might have. We work super closely with the uh, classroom teachers of our students. So, you know, we try to do as much as we can on the front end to answer people's questions, prepare them for what it might look like. And we're constantly thinking about ways to adapt the program that meets the needs to the families that we work with. And yeah, I think we've, we've learned a lot over the years from our participants and their families. And uh, do you have a sense uh, what percentage of the school population actually cycles to school? Is that, has that been measured? We've never measured it out to a, to a percentage can say that the racks at Cesar Chavez School are consistently filled. I think you, you know, I think you see the fluctuation across seasons everywhere you go in the city, and that, that's true at the the schools too. And in the spring and fall, those racks are going to be a lot more packed than they are in December and January. Rosa Park School, our neighboring school, is a very walkable school, so I, I think a lot of parents opt to walk their students to to school, or or that's the option that they have. Whereas Cesar Chavez does pull in a few kids from further away because it's a Spanish immersion magnet school. So they do attract people that are living a little bit geographically further away from the school than, let's say, the student population at Rosa Park Elementary School. And how has the pandemic affected those programs and also the general work of the Community Cycling Center? It's had a huge impact. I can say, at least in terms of our programs and the offerings, summer camp is not able to look anything like it has in the past. So that that program has been turned on end. And then anything at schools uh, obviously was impacted as we had school closures. And then even when we did get school opening, it was all virtual. So we tried, we dabbled a little bit in virtual bike club, but you can kind of imagine how that goes. It's not quite as fun as actual bike club in person on the bikes for the kids, um, to say the least. We actually got into food delivery during the uh, pandemic, and we delivered out of two different locations, one up at Cesar Chavez School mostly, and then also in Cully neighborhood at Northeast Emergency Food Program. And we were delivering, or we still are delivering food on a weekly basis in North Portland, and we did food deliveries for two years two plus years in Cully. And that was just a response as to like kind of what community members were saying is like, you know, we're trapped at home and it was a way to have one less trip outside of the house. We were thinking very much in terms of single mothers that are stuck at home with kids and that taking that one less, taking that one other thing off of their plate of to-dos we felt was helpful and also heard back that was helpful for them. And another program which uh, I was really happy to read about was partnering with Hacienda CDC and New Colombia, which are affordable housing communities in North and Northeast Portland. What is involved with that partnership? So the two communities I think I've mentioned so far is North Portland, where our programs are embedded, and and then also in Cully. And in North Portland, we are... We work to some degree with with Home Forward. They've provided us actually with the space for our repair hub in North Portland. So it's a property adjacent to the Boys and Girls Club and Rosa Parks Elementary School. And it's a small 
kind of a remote repair shack. It's a super small shop, and people are able to show up. It's mainly for kids, but it's open to everybody. They're able to show up and get free repairs on their bikes. We do earn a bikes out of that, so kids can put in and learn different concepts, show that they've mastered some concepts, and eventually they, they earn themselves a bike through that process. We haven't been working super closely with Home Forward, honestly, during the pandemic. So that's a connection that we're hoping to rebuild a little bit here as things open up more. And then Hacienda is is one of our closest partners with the group that we support, Andando and BC Caminando, ABC as they're known, in the Cully neighborhood. And that's a very close-knit community in the sense that a lot of the community-based organizations do work and collaborate with each other extensively and they have done so for many years now so it feels much more like a team atmosphere there with the community-based organizations and we the community cycling center i would say are are kind of tangentially part of that group of community-based organizations so we do we're, we're teaming up with the columbia slough watershed council to do a bike the levees event hacienda's involved with the planning of that We've done a birding event where we biked to, to Whitaker Ponds and did some birding. And I think it was uh, an intern through Verde that led us on that on that walk. And also there's bike parking at Hacienda, which we've been collaborating with them on a little bit. They have a few lockers there that we help manage or we have in the past. That's actually going to look a little bit different in the future. We also do bike donations and bike camps, and we lean on Hacienda to help us with recruitment for both of those as well. The website of the center talks about inclusivity as a goal, and the center has also published a study about barriers to bicycling. From your experience, what are some of those barriers and what could be done to increase inclusivity? I think um, Probably first and foremost, uh, the biggest barrier people are facing to bicycling is the cost of it. Bike prices are going up. Their availability is precarious, to say the least, at the, at, at the current moment. And who knows when that's going to get better. So I think that our shop is well positioned in, in terms of who they try to center and cater to and that we're selling a lot of used parts. Uh, and then offering people kind of some of the opportunities to build the mechanical skills that they would need to build up that bike. Again, that's something that was very severely impacted by the pandemic. So we're hoping to get more and more of those events up, up and running out of our shop space. I think cost is a big one. So the city's bike share program, I think, factors into that a lot. It's, it's really nice to, to hear that the bike town is expanding up north. That's been something that a lot of community members have been have mentioned interest in in that area. And we've teamed up with Bike Town to, to expand their Bike Town for All program. So we're working with them to get more people signed up in the two in the in the few neighborhoods that we're installed in with that program. Other barriers, I mean there's so many. Um, in the neighborhoods that we are embedded in, infrastructure is always an issue. So if you've done if anybody's listening done any biking out east or even in further north portland there are higher speed roads there are fewer bike lanes fewer sidewalks so i think infrastructure is a big factor and i can say that at least in north portland in the community that we work with up there 
you know, it could be a very bikeable area like New Columbia is, but if you are surrounded by some pretty dangerous streets, it kind of stops you from going beyond that. So I'm, I'm talking like Lombard, Fessenden as kind of boundaries for those communities in a certain sense when it comes to biking. So I think addressing those kind of dangerous crossings is, is another really important thing. I think just broadly speaking, it's, it's hard for people to imagine themselves biking in a city if they don't see other people like them biking through the city. So like when we're talking about inclusivity and, and diversifying the cycling scene, you know, it, it does us no favors that we see a lot of white males out there on their bike behaving in a certain way. Not to say that all white males behave in a certain way, but I think it's hard to expand that ridership when people don't have other examples of people who look like them out on bikes. So some of those other barriers, I think addressing those will help get people feeling more comfortable that have a range of cycling backgrounds and experience out there on the road. You know, and and obviously I, I can say with our work, starting with young kids and the youth, building those skills and that understanding from a young age definitely helps. And then also I'll say that our programs definitely try and center and deal with the the whole family. So we, we understand that in order to get more people out on the road, it's important that we get the family out on the road because if mom or dad doesn't bike, it's going to be really hard for them to let their, their children bike and, and vice versa. So um, I think we're always trying to, cater to the family and think about how can we get more families out on the out on the road together. I would like to ask you how you've been changed by your work in bicycle activism. Uh, have you become more optimistic about the human race and the state of the planet? And also maybe related to that, um, you have a degree in social work. I'm wondering if uh, You've brought any insights or wisdom from your field into cycling, if you see any connection between social work and activism. Yeah, my I'm glad that you tied those two together because my my interest in cycling comes from a social work background, I would say. Before I even knew that I wanted to be a social worker, I was a social worker. Um, and I think a lot of people in the social work field find themselves in similar situations, and but that that they come into that master's program already being very effective social workers with a lot of experience themselves. So I mean, I, I can say personally on an individual level, the people that I've worked with in the field here in Portland, starting from the Bicycle Transportation Alliance, I can shout out uh, Emily Lai, Lori Rodriguez, just a, a lot of people that I've worked around that really helped hone kind of my my perception of the world and really helped me see the the privilege that I have in the world and, and that shows up as well in in the cycling scene and so I got deeper and deeper into transportation justice as a field and it all kind of led I feel like to me doing the master's in social work program and I think that that social workers are a great fit for this field I think some of the stuff that I've already spoken to in this interview is, is is social work. Being able to do true community-led work is social work in the sense that you have to be a good listener 
and you have to be a good group facilitator. So you have to understand how people think and interact. You have to understand power dynamics. Otherwise, you're going to be going around prescribing everything to everybody all the time. And also, it's, it's you know, I've touched on this idea of diversifying the cycling scene here in Portland and, and broadly speaking across the world. If we're going to do that, we're going to have to implement some of the values that are guiding social workers. And that's, that's diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's greater understanding of power dynamics. And that is listening before acting and really getting creative and thinking broadly about what cycling can mean to people and meeting people where they're at by taking the time to understand where people are at. Okay, this is a good place to end. Um, we've been speaking with William Francis, Programs Director of the Wonderful Community Cycling Center, an organization that has done much good work in the community since 1994. Thank you so much, William, and all the best. Thank you very much, Alan. Uh, we really appreciate you inviting us onto the show to, to share a little bit. And uh, yeah, if anybody has any questions, they can reach out to me at William at communitycyclingcenter.org. I'll try to get back to you as soon as I can. But otherwise, thank you very much for the invitation and the opportunity. Thank you. We have been speaking with William Francis, Program Director of the Community Cycling Center of Portland. In the first half of the show, we spoke with Keel Johnson of Bike Loud PDX. You've been listening to The Bike Show on behalf of Nedra Deadweiler, my co-host, and myself, Alon Rob, I would like to thank our guests, Keel Johnson of Bike Cloud PDX and William Francis of the Community Cycling Center. And thank you who have joined us today. Safe and enjoyable ride. We will end the show with Johnny Cash singing, I Won't Back Down. Stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. Gonna stand my ground, won't be turned around. And I'll keep this world from dragging me down. Gonna stand my ground, and I won't back down. Hey, baby, there ain't no easy way out. Hey, I will stand my ground and I won't back down. Well, I know what's right I got just one life in a world that keeps on pushing me around but I stand my ground and I won't back down hey baby there ain't no easy way out hey 
will stand my ground And I won't back down No, I won't back down KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. Bienvenidos a un breve informativo en su estación comunitaria KBOO 90.7 FM. Hoy miércoles 2 de marzo del 2022. Una joven de 22 años, Powett Garrett, ha asistido a conferencias universitarias sin contraer COVID. Incluso organizó una fiesta en la que todos dieron positivo, excepto ella. En marzo del 2021 participó en la primera prueba de desafío del COVID-19 del mundo que implicó gotear virus vivo en su nariz y cerrarle las fosas nasales durante varias horas en un esfuerzo